dear ones. You're listening to the What God Is Not podcast with Father Michael O'Loughlin and Mother Natalia. Hello, listeners. This is Father Michael. Today's episode is Mother Natalia's, and we're doing a special episode for Focus and for Seek 2023. Um, because of this, we're talking about uh, St. John Paul II, especially his document, Orientale Lumen, The Light of the East, um, which all of you should read. So uh, after, you re- after you listen to this, go read that if you haven't already. Um, we are talking about how he discusses the Eastern churches and the beauty and diversity of their liturgy, what deification is union with God, the concept of mystery. We talk about monasticism and all the ways um, that our Lord has guided um, his various churches to worship him in the various cultures and the way that there are differences and similarities between the Western church and the Eastern churches. Um, if you are a hashtag banter hater, you can jump ahead six minutes and 30 seconds from the end of this recording. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Could you hear my stomach growl? Because I think <laughs> my stomach's growling during recording. This is horrible. <laughs> So this is Mother Natalia. She's a nun, and so she is holy and doesn't eat much. Well, it's Friday. It's also Friday. Um, okay. Actually, she oftentimes eats while we're while we're talking. So I'm kind of yeah, not while we're recording though. <laughs> I don't know do while we're recording, okay. but yeah, I'm like, do you have time to talk? Great, I'm bringing my lunch, <laughs> and then you have to listen to me chew into the microphone. So I had this moment, I've been, my memory's been so bad recently. Um, And when we started recording the last episode, I had this panic during the five second countdown at the beginning of, I had forgotten what my topic was, only to remember that it wasn't my topic. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the whole story. Since this is a Seek episode, we had to introduce ourselves because Oh, I am usually the one who forgets things, and that's an important part of the introduction. So the mm-hmm. fact that Mother Natalia forgot something is makes me feel happy. Um, because I'm happy. I yeah, that's true. That. I didn't think about that, that we should introduce ourselves. So I'm Mother Natalia, and this is Father Michael Lachlan. And Hello. we have this podcast called What God Is Not. I just for a second forgot the name of our podcast that we've been doing for a couple of years now. Um, and that's Father Michael dropping the pen that he's playing with because he always fidgets while we're recording. We need to get you a fidget spinner. Are those quiet? I have I have many of those. Emma says they're not quiet. We have no, our audience not. of one and she says they're not quiet. I actually have a little fidget, little doohickey, a fidget doohickey, but that's it's very loud. Is that the thing where you like pop the bubbles? It was I mean, the not thing, pop the bubbles. Remember when we were up at the Pelosi's for the wedding and... and uh, I forget who uh, one of the girls gave me their little fidget square, little fidget oh, cube. Yes, I forgot about that because you were we were recording there, and they noticed because I was me. That's why <laughs> I was well, being yes. myself. Yes, um, which we love. We love who you are, Father Michael. Um, speaking of which, since this is a Seek episode, and maybe some people haven't heard this podcast before, um, can you just give? I don't want us to do the thing where we introduce each other. Can you just give like a thirty second? summary of you. My name is Father Michael O'Loughlin. I am a Byzantine Catholic priest of the Eparchy of Phoenix. I was ordained in 2005. I served in Denver, Colorado for 14 years 
where I became a member of the Companions of Christ, who you've probably heard of. Um, I was the pastor of Holy Protection of the Mother of God. It was amazing. Um, then the bishop and the Holy Spirit moved me to Southern California, to Los Angeles, to Sherman Oaks in the Valley, where I serve at St. Mary's Proto-Cathedral now for three years. I have a, another outreach up in Santa Paula, California. I was on the Catholic Stuff You Should Know podcast for about four years back before I got moved. Um, and uh, my legacy is I facilitated the discernment of Father Joel Barstat to the priesthood and Mother Natalia to the monastery. Those are the best things I ever did was facilitate those two vocations. Aww, that's my that's legacy. really sweet, except that I think maybe your priesthood is above those. Well, it's part of our priesthood. Okay. We have two um, very cool looking Angelinos covered in tattoos walking into the church right now that I can see from my office. That's great. So pray for them. <laughs> they look like a Brad and a Brenda. <laughs> um, we were laughing because my stomach was growling a lot again while you were talking. That's We weren't laughing at you. We were laughing at my belly. I'm so used to la you laughing at me. It doesn't even bother me anymore. I know. Um, which was a problem in that one homily where you didn't realize you said something wrong when I was laughing because you were so used to me laughing. Exactly. Um, we can talk about that at another so point. Can you, Not right uh, now. can you give a 15 second version of who you are? Oh, you gave me half of the dime. <laughs> I can't. I'm, um, I'm just kidding. But I'm Mother Natalia. Go for <laughs> I'm Mother Natalia, formerly Sister Natalia, formerly She Who Shall Not Be Named. And um, I found the Byzantine Rite. We're Byzantine Catholic. I don't remember if you said that. Um, I found the Byzantine Rite when I was in college after I had a reversion to the faith and through focus, actually. Um, you can hear about that on the podcast we did for Seek last year. And then um, after discovering the Byzantine Rite, I started attending Holy Protection, which is where I met Father Michael and where he became my spiritual father um, almost 12 years ago. And then um, I dated pretty much the whole world, got that out of my system, and uh, which is what this um, Orthodox monk says after hearing my story. He's like, she dated the whole world. And not too much of an exaggeration. Then I entered the monastery in 2015 um, and was tantured a nun in 2016 and made my life profession in September of 2021. Um, which is when I became Mother Natalia. That was more than 35 seconds, I'm sure. Yeah. Our monastery is Christ the Bridegroom Monastery in um, Troy Township, Ohio. Uh, but the mailing address is Burton. If you're wondering, if that's confusing, it is. Mother's also very OCD. Also, because this is Sikh, um, I have, if any of y'all listening know my amazing family, uh, Joseph and Seska O'Loughlin, or Teresa and Cullen Gibbons, all folks missionaries, all met in focus, all got married because of focus. And so we love them. Aww. And we love focus because of it. Yeah. And for other reasons. Yeah. So that's the story. Um, so I would like mm, for this episode for us to talk about the patron saint of this year's Sikh, which is St. John Paul II. Um, I 
would imagine that lots of people are going to be talking about St. John Paul II. And so I wanted to pick something, a topic about him that was very particular um, to us and to this podcast and to my monastery. So I'd like to talk about his apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen. Um, Father Michael, have you ever heard of Orientale Lumen? I have. It means... Oh, no. I, if, if, I, if I try to make up something funny, it's going to sound racist. So um, it means light of the East. Yes, it means light of the East. So, um, you know, what's really cool is that as I was rereading Oriental Lumen to prepare for this podcast, so um, two things. One is that I realized I've said something very incorrect on this podcast before, which is I've said that the St. John Paul II talking about breathing with both lungs of the church is from this letter, and it's not. It's from mm. Ut Unum Sint, which is that they may be one. Um, is it's, So it's from that. Who corrected you? I'm curious. No one. I just, as I was reading this, I was like, this doesn't say anything about both lungs. Oh. <laughs> and so then I looked it up online and found that it was in that document. Mm. So... There's that. That's the first thing. The second thing that I wanted to say about the document in general, as I was reading it, is the copy from our library is um, being borrowed by one of the nuns. And so I had to take the copy from our JP2 room. Uh, St. John Paul II is um, kind of the primary reason apart from God. Not apart. He's not apart from God. He's a saint. But um, other than God being the primary reason that our monastery started, it's St. John Paul II, which I'll get into kind of at the end of this. But uh, so we have a JP2 room where we have like a stole that JP2 wore and we have all of the things that he's ever written and things like that. So uh, I took our very old copy of Oriental Lumen from that to borrow. And there's an inscription in here. That says, um, because this book was given to us by our friend, Father Dennis, and it says, given to Father Dennis Rubiak, May 2nd, 1995, by His Holiness John Paul II. May 2nd, 1995 is the day that this letter came out. So, Father Dennis was there and and JP2 gave him um, a copy of it with this inscription. So, um, well, Father Dennis might have written the inscription. I'm not sure. It just says like remembering where it came from, but, uh, that's cool, right? That's very cool. Father Dennis is amazing. Father Dennis is so amazing. Like that man has so many stories that it's like, did you know he like adopted a kid and, um, raised this kid when he was younger and it's just, he's got incredible stories. Um, and he smiles a lot and he's so happy all the time. He's so beautiful. He's like, I told him one time that um, his smile is um, David's liar to my soul. Um, So like when I'm in a bad mood or I'm feeling angry or anything like that, like Father Dennis smiles and it's all just gone. And it's like, that's what David, David would just play the liar and then Saul's okay. Um, So that's how I feel about Father Dennis. He just lightens my heart so much. So beautiful man. He surely doesn't listen to this podcast, but shout out to Father Dennis. So <laughs> true. So Orientale Lumen, Light of the East, was written um, by St. John Paul II and came out on May 2nd of 1995. Father Michael, I did not know this. I didn't realize it until I was rereading this. Um, do you know, I just did the thing that, that I'm not supposed to do where I'm throwing you under the bus. Do you know why <laughs> I think that you can just nod and <laughs> mm-hmm, yep, you're doing the thing. Um, do you know why JP2 wrote this? Like what it was like in response to or celebration of or whatever? 
Siri, why did JP2 write <laughs> of the East? Siri's not going to have anything to say. Um, well, she gave me a link to it. Oh, Vatican. that's nice. Okay. Thank you, Siri. So, um, so I've never read this document, but apparently 100 years before this, in 1894... Um, so a hundred and one half year is more accurate. Uh, <laughs> Pope Leo the Thirteenth wrote Orientalium Dignitas. So, um, so Pope John Paul the Second wrote this um, as like the at the centenary centenary the the hundred year and the hundredth anniversary of that document. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to, I feel like we should just restart this entire podcast episode. Okay, so I want to go through. Um, I think this is a really important document for Catholics in general. Um, and I don't think it's any more important for Eastern Catholics than it is for Western. Like, if anything, it might be more important for the Western Catholics. And so I'd like to kind of go through the themes of the document, but I also want to encourage people um, to, to look it up and read it. You can find encyclicals for free on the Vatican website in English, and it's only um, 54 pages. And Just ask um, Siri. That's just what I had did. Yeah, just ask Siri, and it'll come up. It's actually only 51 pages because it starts on page three. So um, that would make it 52 pages. But the last page only has like a couple sentences on it, so it's really like 51 pages. Okay. This is um, so interesting. <laughs> Part of my introduction should have been warning people about my awkwardness. It's fine. They'll learn very quickly. So the first thing that St. John Paul II talks about in this encyclical is the Catholics need, um, like Western Catholics, their need to be familiar with Eastern tradition and to really long for restored Catholicism. Catholicism within the church. Um, because Catholic, I think a lot of people uh, take the word Catholic for granted, like when we say it in our creed, but Catholic means universal, right? Mm-hmm. So St. John Paul II is making the point that the universal church is just that. It's universal. It doesn't exist only um, in Rome and the or only in, in the Western world. And I think this is a huge, huge misconception in our church that a lot of people think Roman Catholicism is synonymous with Catholicism. Why are you smirking, Father Michael? I'm not. I'm okay. thinking of something else. Um, so a lot of people think Roman Catholicism, this was me for many years of my life. I didn't even know about Eastern Catholicism. And so Roman Catholicism is synonymous with Catholicism. And that's not, that's just not true. Like there are many other types of Catholic other than Roman Catholic. And so Father Michael and I are Byzantine Catholics, which is um, one of the other um, rites of the Catholic church. So, and you can read about those in the catechism, the different rites and the different churches of the, of the Catholic church. So that's his first point is that um, in order to really embrace Catholicism, um, little c Catholicism, we need to be familiar with both the East and the West and the different traditions of the church. And then to, to kind of talk about that, he makes the point of, he says, I don't want to just talk about um, the, the theological points of Eastern 
um, of the Eastern Church, he starts with talking about the the liturgy um, because the liturgy really expresses um, the theology, and this is true in in all the different um, places of the church that our liturgy reflects our theology. So he talks about the the Eastern concept of of deification, like this becoming like God, becoming God, even if we want to be so bold as to say that, um, as we as we grow in union with Him. And there's this this emphasis in the East that this deification begins even on on Earth, and we we see this. Um, Irenaeus and Athanasius both talk about this, but um, Irenaeus says that God became man so that man might become God, um, which. St. John Paul II quoted that in Oriental Lumen, actually. He says that, um, Irenaeus says, I, I like this translation even more, God passed into man so that man might pass over to God. Um, so this concept of the East, that, that we're called um, to become like God, to be more and more in union with God, even here on earth. Um, and... Um, he talks about this emphasis in the East on mystery. Like there's very much like, this is why our, our podcast is called what God is not because there is an emphasis in the East on uh, what we call apophatic theology. There's cataphatic theology and apophatic theology and cataphatic theology is talking about um, what God is or who God is, the attributes of, of God and, and things. Um, but in the East, there's this emphasis on talking about what God is not because we know that in our, our human language, we're so limited that any analogy we make is going to fail. And so basically it's just, it's safer for us to say what God is not than what he is. Because every time we try to say what he is, we're trying to contain him within within human language. So um, the way St. John Paul II puts it is that it's impossible to know what God is only that he is. And and then he he talks about how this sense of mystery is strongly felt um, by all the faithful of the Christian East in liturgical celebration and and kind of what that looks like. Um, you'll see you'll see many people in the West in the Roman Catholic Church nowadays uh, kind of striving for that mystery because at, at Vatican II obviously um, there was a an attempt, um, beautiful in many ways, to to make the liturgy um, easier to participate in mm-hmm. by the use of the vernacular. Um, I think you know many of those things that 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 came after Vatican II. Too, I know that Vatican II assumed Latin even, um, but but Vatican there was a, <laughs> Vatican like the II Vatican as Ballerina. well. Yeah, <laughs> Vatican II. <tutu. laughs> That's going to be the logo for this episode. Um, <laughs> that image, um, but there was, a, in other words, there, there's a there's a desire within the Roman Catholic Church to find the wisdom between um, how do we make the the liturgy, the mass, um, approachable, participatory, and yet still reveal the the transcendence of God, the holiness of mm. God. That's a wisdom, and um, 
And the same thing is is true, and that's why you'll see many people nowadays kind of arguing to go back to more use of the Latin in the mass, is because that provides a certain mystery. Um, you know, mo- even though I mean I've been to some traditional Latin masses that are beautiful, and it's so nice to have the translation there because you realize how beautiful these prayers are. These ancient prayers are incredibly beautiful. Um, but so there's different ways that that the various uh, churches, the Roman Catholic Church and all the Eastern Catholic churches, um, had the way that they express that reality between the imminence of God, the closeness of God, the intimacy with God that we have accessible, and then the transcendence, the, the separateness, the holiness of God. Um, and that's something that that the East has never really changed, especially um, the Eastern churches, they've never really changed. So there's a, there's a great mystery that, that is kind of at the forefront of especially Roman Catholics experience of the East is the, the hiddenness, the mystery, the veiled nature of who God is and what he's doing that, that brings a certain wonder and an awe to those who participate. Mm-hmm. If you're interested more to hear more about that, um, do you remember Father Michael what it was called. You did an episode about the veil, like behind, beyond the veil, behind the veil, oh. under the veil. Um, do you know what I'm, I'm talking gonna, about? I'm going to look it up while you, while you keep Okay, talking. but you know what I'm talking about, yeah? Like you talked about nope. this concept of veiling that, which is... I know, I know I've talked about it. I do not remember, but hold Something about the it. unveiled, maybe. Anyways. Um, okay, well, the next thing that I wanted to mention that St. John Paul II talks about um, is... So a huge part of this document is about monasticism. And he 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 shares that um, monasticism uh, really originated in the East, um, which I appreciate. So um, I'll get into that in a second. I have a, I have a salty story about this. But uh, I want to share just this this quote um, that St. John Paul II puts in Oriental Lumen, but it's a quote from the Second Vatican Council. Um, in the decree on ecumenism. He says, Moreover, in the East are to be found the riches of those spiritual traditions which are given expression in monastic life especially. From the glorious times of the Holy Fathers that monastic spirituality flourished in the East, which later flowed over into the Western world. And there provided a source from which Latin monastic life took its rise and has often drawn fresh vigor ever since. Therefore, it is earnestly recommended that Catholics avail themselves more often of the spiritual riches of the Eastern Fathers, which lift up the whole man to the contemplation of the divine mysteries. And I think that this is part of what you're, like what you're seeing, Father Michael, about how in the West, people are starting to more embrace this, this concept of mystery, because I, I'm hearing more and more people talk about the church fathers. Like, I think that there's been this resurgence in the church of people wanting to go back to the fathers. Um, and as they read more of these Eastern fathers, um, they're lifted up to the contemplation of the divine mysteries and they're really drawn into this concept of mystery. Um, I, I like that um, St. John Paul II. So I read, I read a book one time. I'm not going to say what the book was because I think that's unkind, but... <laughs> Why do you look so surprised that I read a book? I read lots of books, Father Michael. I was more surprised you weren't going to give the name. Oh, but it's because but it's an unkind sure thing. Oh, okay. um, then I'm not surprised. You're a very kind person. Uh, uh, so the in this book, um, the person, um, the author writes in like the very beginning, it might even be the introduction. She calls um, St. Benedict the father of monasticism. Oh, and heresy. I 
was so triggered. Um, Benedict is absolutely the father of Western monasticism, but he is not the father of monasticism. Like Basil, Pacomius, Anthony, I would have taken any of them um, because they like lived it to different degrees. But I was really triggered when she called Benedict the father of monasticism and skipped over all of those others. And that's how I feel about that. So (laughs) (laughs) I felt really... um, Vindicated? Is that the word? When well, this is why John Paul wrote this, so that people <laughs> would understand there are other monastics in the uh-huh. world. Um, St. John Paul II wrote this long before the book came out that I'm referring to, <laughs> but she clearly hasn't read it. Well, then that's um, her fault. So, anyways, so I just appreciated that part that um, monasticism found its uh, roots in the East. But, um, The reason it's so important, um, well, I'll come back to that in a second. One thing that I found interesting that I had forgotten about until rereading this um, is kind of the opposite of what you were saying, Father Michael, about the vernacular. Did you find the episode? Nope. Must have been called something else. Hmm. I'll look it up later. Maybe while you're talking, I'm going to... Emma's got this. Emma's Emma's on it. We have an audience of one, Emma Dice. It's got something about Veiled. Well, I remember the episode. Uh, yes. I remember listening to something. Like you were talking about some book. That's what I remember. About a like a book by a priest or something. Was it literature? I'll keep on thinking. Liturgy? No. Was that the book? Oh, I don't know. Anyways, Emma's gonna find it. It's gonna be fine. So um but St. John Paul II actually talks about the beauty of um the fact that in the East the liturgy has always been in the vernacular. Uh so, like, to some extent, this has kind of, like, I don't know. We say that, but then um, a lot of, like, Ukrainian parishes today will have the liturgy in Ukrainian, even though they're in America. But those are also the parishes that still have a lot of Ukrainian immigrants in them and, th- and things like that. So I think that's We've, part of it. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of hard to distinguish this because by the vernacular, which means the language of the people. So our mm-hmm. liturgy is always yeah. the language of the people. But um, we say that's an ideal in the East, but that has certainly not always been the case. People have been fighting for dead languages like Church Slavonic, and that's still, that fight's still going on. Um, but but I, I think that the church would generally say as a, as a trend and as an ideal, the Eastern churches have always celebrated the liturgy and the language of the people. Um, mm-hmm. That wasn't one of the ways that mystery was provided. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of other ways. And that's one of the things that St. John Paul II um, calls out as one of the great values um, is the the attention given to peoples and their cultures is what he says. Yeah. Um, so that the word of God, these are his words, so that the word of God and his praise may resound in every language. Um, so because he talks about how this is what Cyril and Methodius would do when they would um, when they would arrive in a land. The first thing they would do is translate the gospel and the liturgy into the language of of those people. Um, and and Saint John Paul II puts it very beautifully. I think he says um, the attitude of the two brothers from Thessalonica is representative in Christian antiquity of a style typical of many churches. Revelation is proclaimed satisfactorily and becomes fully understandable when Christ speaks the tongues of the various peoples and they can read scripture and sing the liturgy in their own language with their own expressions as though repeating the marvels of Pentecost. Hmm. Christ speaks the tongues of the various peoples. Um, Yeah, so that's just, that's um, interesting. You look confused by this. 
No, I'm I'm just I'm trying to think about like just how how I mean Sermothodius, just for our new listeners, were two Greek brothers who were sent into the pagan lands that are now the the lands where our Byzantine, Ruthenian, Carpathian ancestors came from. So they they went, they found an existing language, a spoken language that did not have a written counterpart. So they they took their understanding of the Greek, the Greek letters, et cetera, and and created um, what is called the the Slavonic alphabet, the Slavonic language, because um, uh, excuse me, not the Slavonic Slavonic language, the the Cyrillic alphabet, because it was Saint Cyril and Methodius, so Saint, it's named after him. But the alphabet based upon the Greek uh, was a language, so that the people could, yeah, pray. Um, the existing word of God in the scriptures and then have a, a written down liturgy that they could also pray. I, I can't even imagine how frustrating it would be to learn about this this religion, this faith that the missionaries claim as true and yet I don't have access in any way that is going to be understanding uh, to read the word of God or to to pray the liturgy, to have any sort of prayer that is in a in a language I already know. Um, that's that's like mystery gone too far. Um so yeah, I, I, I commend St. John Paul for understanding how important that is. Their missionaries would, would uh, enculturate the, the beautiful objective word of God in a way that the people of that culture will understand it. Um, yeah, I think we found the episode, by the way, and I think it's called Revealed Concealed, which does oh, okay. not have the word veil in it. <laughs> but that would make sense. That would be it though. Yeah, I think that's it. It's from like 2020. 2020. Yeah. Wow. That was so Maybe long ago. Maybe I didn't go back far enough. So you yeah. had to go all the way back, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So um, monasticism, having Eastern origins. So the reason that uh, St. John Paul II talks so much about monasticism in this document is um, because he... he points out that monasticism is seen as a model of baptismal life. So um, in the East, um, these are St. John Paul II's words, in the East, monasticism was not seen merely as a separate condition proper to a precise category of Christians, but rather as a reference point for all the baptized, according to the gifts offered to each by the Lord. It was presented as a symbolic synthesis of Christianity. So the the phrase that we like to use in our community is that monasticism is seen as this, this sliding scale. Like all baptized Christians are called to live out monasticism to the extent that is proper to their vocation, um, to their state in life. And so what St. John Paul II does is he then goes through um, a lot of the lessons of monasticism and and in this document and what the baptized Christian um, can and should learn from the life of a monastic. So, um, and this paragraph that I want to share um, just because it gives kind of a shout out to us uh, and talks about the significance of the monasticism that we're living. He says, I would also like to mention the splendid witness, <laughs> splendid, splendid witness of nuns in the Christian East. This witness has offered an example of giving full value in the church to what is specifically feminine, even breaking through the mentality of the time. During recent persecutions, especially in Eastern European countries, when many male monasteries were forcibly closed, 
female monasticism kept the torch of the monastic life burning. The nun's charism, with its own specific characteristics, is a visible sign of that motherhood of God to which sacred scripture often refers. Um, I love that line, the, the motherhood of God to which sacred scripture often refers. And I think this speaks a lot to um, what, what we've talked about before on the podcast, Father Michael, about the role of women in the church. Um, I don't mean that all women are called to be nuns in the church because then we would have no more church. Um, but that um, we are all called as women to have this motherhood and, and to really live out um, to be a sign of the motherhood of God. Um, and again, what that looks like is different in the various vocations, but to look at the motherhood of the nun in the East as that reference point, because this is why I'm called Mother Natalia. Like I'm not the superior of our community, which is what most Roman Catholics would think uh, by the fact that I'm called mother, right? In fact, at our monastery, there are six mothers. Um, That took me a long time to figure out Um, because the tradition in the East is that when you make your life profession, you receive the title mother, symbolic of your spiritual motherhood. The same tradition is true in the West. Um, I mean, sorry, the same tradition is true in male monasteries in the East that um, a monk would take on the title father um, when, um, when they make their life profession. And so even if they're not a priest or deacon or anything like that, they're called father. Like we know monks who are father so-and-so, um, like Father Isaac, for example, from Holy Resurrection Monastery, who's not a priest, but he's called father because of his life profession. I want to do a quick uh, term check real quick as well, just for the new people that are listening, because Hasek, when we say the East, um, basically the history is that when Christ sent out the apostles to the twelve corner to the four twelve apostles to the four corners of the world, um, they they went first to the major cities as as anybody would um, doing evangelization, and so we we talk about I'm going to overgeneralize here and give a too much history in a very brief term, but the first five major hubs of Christianity were Jerusalem, of course, where Jesus was just north of that in Antioch in Syria, just south of that in Alexandria in Egypt, and then over in Rome where Peter and Paul were martyred, and then a few hundred years later, then in Constantinople, which became the new Rome when Constantine moved the seat of the Roman Empire to Constantinople. Um, About a thousand years after that, what we call the Great Schism, again, overgeneralizing, was uh, an excommunication of the East from the West. By that, we mean the, the church in Rome from the four churches uh, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria that were further east. Um, so these were, of course, kind of the eastern end of the Mediterranean. That schism, what we should call the Great Schism, um, then formed what we call the Catholics in the west and the Orthodox in the east. About 500 years later, um, for various reasons, uh, many of the churches in the east um, wanted to uh, come back in union with the church in the West, with the Roman Catholic Church. And so there were various unions of Brest, of, of Ushirot, et cetera, where um, churches, uh, some of them, uh, rejoined communion with the Roman Catholic Church while maintaining most, if not all, their traditions. And then some did not, some remained Orthodox. And so uh, when we say East, we mean Eastern Christians, which would be one of the other 23 different Catholic churches all in union with the Roman Catholic Church. So 24 different Catholic churches, 
Uh, most people don't know that either. Um, but our Byzantine Catholic Church is one of those other ones along with the Ukrainians, the Melkites, the Maronites, uh, Syro-Albanian, Syro-Malankar, um, excuse me, Italo-Albanian, Syro-Malankar, et cetera. So you can look all those up quite easily. But when we say East, we mean one of the other Catholic churches other than what we call the the Roman Catholic Church, um, which is, uh, yeah, the biggest and the best known, but there are certainly other ones like ours as well. I thought you were about to say the biggest and the best, not best known. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Father Michael. <laughs> All equal, Mother. All equal. Um, so, um, yes, thank you. You're much better at giving the historical context than I am, so I appreciate you doing that. Uh, so, because um, monasticism is seen as the model for baptismal life, uh, St. John Paul II then, like I said, walks through um, kind of the lessons of, of monasticism for the Christian East. So he talks about um, the importance of the word of God and, um, and being um, having life kind of suspended between the word of God and the Eucharist. He talks about uh, the liturgy, the liturgy being for the whole man and for the whole cosmos. He talks about self-discovery, um, a father in the spirit, in which he's talking about spiritual fatherhood, uh, which is a very significant concept in the East, mm-hmm. um, and one that I think is becoming more kind of absorbed in the West as well, this concept of, of spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood. And, and then he gives just kind of... Um, at the end of, he talks about more things with monasticism, an adoring silence, a person in relationship. But then at the end, he really gives this like beautiful cry for reunification, um, talking about um, really his personal ache for this, but then also encouraging um, all of the faithful to ache for this same thing. Uh, and it's obviously important to him because he also wrote Unum Singt, which I spoke of earlier, that they may be one. Um, and I really think that um, St. John Paul II took strides um, towards this reunification, although we're still obviously um, fighting for it. But it's also uh, what I find striking as he talks about reunification is he, he really— um, and, and he talks about it as sin. He calls it the sin of separation, um, mm-hmm. which I think is is really beautiful and and very accurate, you know. Um, but he talks about the the importance of um, of coming back together and having unification without um, diminishing the the authenticity or originality of the different traditions. And the reason I think that's so important is because I feel like oftentimes when, when people, um, when people want like the Eastern churches to, to come back into communion with Rome, uh, which we have as Eastern Catholics, we have this communion with Rome while also maintaining our, our authentic Eastern traditions. But then um, that I, I feel like oftentimes people are just like, wanting us to be more, more Western. And, um, and I think that this is, um, this is a problem of like, it's a problem that we see in society today as well of, of thinking that equality is sameness. Right. And, 
um, this mindset, this mentality has kind of crept into the church where people think that like, in order for us to be one, we have to be the same. Um, and St. John Paul II was one who very much understood that we can have both of these um, traditions and, and that we can live well, even the places in the traditions where there seems to be a tension. Um, and this is talked about in some of the Vatican II, uh, the Vatican II documents. He says, um, one, of the, one of the quotes from uh, Vatican II, um, again, this is the decree on ecumenism. They say, in the study of revealed truth, East and West have used different methods and approaches in understanding and confessing divine things. It is hardly surprising then if sometimes one tradition has come nearer to a full appreciation of some aspects of a mystery of revelation than the other, or has expressed them better. In such cases, these various theological formulations are often to be considered complementary rather than conflicting. I think Father Michael Lee describes this very well as like oftentimes um, we're looking at the same thing on top of a mountain, um, the east and west, but but we're we're coming up the mountain from two different sides of the mountain. And so what we're seeing and what we're experiencing might be different, um, but we're coming to the same um, the same view at the top, sort of. Um. And that top may not be till heaven, but then we'll we'll see it clearly. There, there are certainly debates. Um, within within Catholicism, um, that I can't imagine being sorted out because they they're both so traditional in each tradition in each church, mm-hmm. um, and I, that doesn't bother me honestly personally. I just think the the this is we did a whole podcast on on wrestling with God recently. This is one of the things that we're going to wrestle with in the church, even with each other. The this this struggle for truth and beauty and goodness that is is good that it is. Debated, good that it is is fought with, wrestled with, struggled with. There are certain truths like Christ's resurrection um, that that are not up for debate. You know, the Christ rose from the dead. Our, our as Saint Paul says our, our faith would be pointless if he didn't. So there are certainly things that are that are settled and need to be settled. Dogmas of the Church, etc. But there are certain things that that need need nuance and and wrestling and and differences. So that when we get to the top of the hill, which is in heaven, then we'll say, ah, okay, here's how. There was a complementarity between them, not just one was exactly right and one one was one was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'd love to. Uh, I'm guessing we have more listeners than usual because this is a seek episode. I'd love to talk about some of those if you have some of the differences between the two um, where we find complementarity. If that's something that you'd like to do, Mother, this is your episode. Um, sure. Yeah. There's only um, there's only one more thing that I wanted to mention. Um, so let me just say that and then we can spend the rest of the time talking about those things. And if you have a couple specifics that you want to talk about, that would be great. So, um, I say that so you can be thinking of them as I'm speaking. The, oh, I, already, the, I already wrote them down. Oh, great. Look at you. You have such messy handwriting. Um, Thank you. so the, the last thing I wanted to mention is the paragraph that really was the push towards the start of our monastery. Um, which our monastery started in 2009. Uh, so it was, um, you know, quite a bit. It was nine plus five. It was 14 years after this came out. Um, but, uh, but it was in response to this document. So in, um, in Orientale Lumen, St. John Paul II says, with regard to monasticism, in consideration of its importance in Eastern Christianity, 
we would like it to flourish once more in the Eastern Catholic churches and that support be given to all those who feel called to work for its revitalization. In fact, in the East, an intrinsic link exists between liturgical prayer, spiritual tradition, and monastic life. For this reason precisely, a well-trained and motivated renewal of monastic life could mean true ecclesial fruitfulness for them as well. Nor should it be thought that this would diminish the effectiveness of the pastoral ministry, which in fact will be strengthened by such a vigorous spirituality, and thus will find once more its ideal place. This hope also concerns the territories of the Eastern Diaspora, where the presence of Eastern monasteries, um, that would be like places like the United States, where the presence of Eastern monasteries would give greater stability to the Eastern churches in those countries and would make a valuable contribution to the religious life of Western Christians. So, um, Bishop John Kudrick, the Bishop Emeritus of our eparchy or our diocese, um, he put something out in response to St. John Paul II's Oriental Lumen and says, this is what I want in our eparchy. I want a traditional monastery in, in our eparchy that's going to um, help the spiritual life flourish. And uh, I think he was imagining that it would be first a men's monastery and then a women's monastery. But our Hegumena, our superior mother Theodora, uh, is the one who responded to that letter and started our monastery in 2009. So um, we love St. John Paul II is is the point of that. And um, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. You know, I, I think, um, and I, I'm going to literally just say this while I'm thinking it, which I know is very, very dangerous. So we may need to have a correction episode after this one, which we've done a few times. <laughs> Um, for saying things that we developed later on and realized that we're not necessarily heretical, but just could have been said differently. Um, but I'm thinking that one of the one of the differences that 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 uh, reveal the fullness of our humanity, you may say it that way, between the the basics of the Western Church and the basics of the Eastern churches is is the sense of which I think became what we may call scholasticism in the West. Um, that's a a desire to love God. And in this desire to love God, there was an analysis of the truths of God in Revelation, all types of Revelation. And the the more that we understand the the specifics and the the details of the things of God, the better we can love him. So scholasticism was a, in many ways, a systematic approach. It was a way of, of saying, let us come to understand every detail of everything that God has revealed to us in nature, in science, in theology, in, in the fullness of revelation, et cetera. In the East, we have done that in many ways as well, of course, where we feel, where we find that appropriate. But there's also a emphasis, I'll put it that way, an emphasis on, on awe and wonder um, that, that obviously is present in any sort of deep analysis of the specifics, because even if it doesn't matter how much we, even a scholastic mind, we will analyze who God is and, and how he relates to us and how he guides us, there's always going to be room for awe and wonder. Um, in the East, we've just made that more part of our liturgy and our spiritual process. Um, I think to emphasize that, 
in a way that that we find helpful to our relationship with Christ. And so what I mean by, I'm just going to say these things as I'm thinking them because I've been a priest now 18 years and this just kind of dawned on me, but I wrote this list as I showed you, Mother, um, I wrote this list of, of things that usually intrigue Roman Catholics and intrigued me when I was Roman Catholic um, about the differences. And I, I think a lot of them may have to do with this idea, may have to mm-hmm. do with the idea that, that again, the, these things develop over time, but like the, the Roman Catholic uh, beautiful tradition of exposition and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, um, there's something about, um, I am going to, I'm going to, um, you know, expose an exposition. I'm going to be blessed with, I'm going to gaze upon um, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ as in the Holy Eucharist. And, and in the, in the Eastern mindset, um, that just seems kind of odd. You know, it, it seems kind of odd to, to, to be looking at something that looks like bread when we have a whole iconographic tradition of something you can look at that looks like Jesus. And when it looks like bread, that means, okay, then I eat it because I eat bread. And so there's a sense of to, to overblow the tension of the East and this is to exaggerate it, make him out of a molehill. But some have said, you know, it, it's a torturous for someone in the East to, to see the Eucharist, which is to be received and then have it put away without receiving it. To like say, hey, look, it's the Eucharist. This is normally to be received and to, you're, gonna, you're gonna come in union with Jesus if you receive it, but now I'm gonna put it back in the tabernacle. Um, again, that, that, that's overblowing the situation, but I can kind of see what we're getting at when we say that. So there, in the, in the East, we're much more prone and, and our tradition would be to veil the things like that. We veil the entire altar with the iconostas. We veil um, the Eucharist. Um, you generally would never look at the Eucharist except maybe right before it's um, put in your mouth in, in the reception of the Holy Eucharist. You know, there's a, there's a boundary in a sense between the hand and, and the reception when you use the spoon. We use a spoon to distribute the Eucharist. There, there's a lot of, of kind of imposed separation that is done out of awe and wonder. And as I look at these things, I, I can kind of see where we are. And these things have developed over time, but we in the, we in the Eastern churches generally, especially here in the Byzantine Catholic Church, we certainly do. Um, we have the tradition of giving the Eucharist to infants. Now this was a tradition in, in the West as well, in the Roman Catholic Church as well. And for various reasons, we don't have the time to go into. Um, it was um, removed to only be given to those who at least can understand what they're receiving. So there was a sense that we don't give the Eucharist to infants. There, there's other historical reasons. But nowadays, most Roman Catholics, ecclesiologists will say, we don't give the Eucharist to infants because we want them to know what they're receiving before they receive it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that certainly is kind of a, a more of a Western scholastic mode of saying, we need to analyze this and know this with our, our human brains before we can approach it in, in, with all of its dignity, with all of our dignity. Whereas in the East, we just say, well, I'm standing in as much awe as, as the child is and so why not give it to the child too? Why not give them that grace early? The same thing for confirmation, chrismation. We give that also with baptism. So as the Roman church did too in the ancient church, baptism, chrismation, confirmation, and Eucharist all together, the all three sacraments of initiation, mysteries of initiation together. Um, so that, that makes kind of sense with the whole, um, again, th- th- this is not this black and white, but the, the West's desire to love God by by intellectually grasping and and breaking down to his component parts the the issues of theology, whereas the East emphasizes more the wonder, the awe, the mystery. Same thing with marriage. Go ahead, Mother. I think that there's also, like, even in that, like, as Byzantines, I think we're more okay with, like, 
we can have both of these, the mystery and the oh, more yeah. scholastic at the same time. And that's fine because we're okay with mystery. But there's okay. there's okay. also, uh, I think that a couple things to remember as well is just like historical context of, I'm not saying this is the case, but like to have more general rules that apply to um, in a more black and white way of like, this is the age at which you do this. This is the, like, mm. that does make more sense if you have the the numbers that Roman Catholicism does, right? Yeah. Like our churches are so much smaller that formation and catechesis and all of that can be so much more individualized. Like we can still have the priest do baptism, chrismation and first communion, as opposed to like having the bishop come out and confirm everybody. Um, and those things are just like in a very practical sense, being having smaller churches make sense of that. Um, I know that doesn't apply in parts of the world where the Eastern churches are the much larger. Um, so there's that as well. But I think like particularly looking at the differences in the United states um then some of those make sense but uh the other thing is just realizing you and i've talked about this a lot father michael but like so many of the differences are the beauty of the holy spirit working within the church to combat particular heresies in different parts of the church and so um like we haven't to my knowledge like the east has never struggled with the um, this concept of the true presence in the Eucharist, like that's just kind of taken, like that's just a given for us. Like, of course, Christ is present in the Eucharist and and has been. Um, we've had other heresies develop in the East, such as iconoclasm. Um, like that's our big one. Um, but in the West, so like some of the traditions in the West have come about as a response to those heresies as a particular um like combating against that, which is, you know, that's just like how we have to read St. Paul's letters is he's combating particular heresies. And it's dangerous if we take that as just like a general um, thing. Like that's why his words can be so misinterpreted uh, without the historical context. But I, you know, one of the nuns of our monastery pointed out at one point that like this, this realization that like, what's one of the greatest heresies in the West? Well, it's the doubting the true presence in the Eucharist. And what's like one of the things that you hear the most miracles of in the West is the Eucharistic miracles. And in the East, what miracle do we talk about but weeping icons? And our greatest heresy has been iconoclasm in the East. Um, and so maybe not greatest, but one of the greatest. And so um, it's just like, it's also, we have to realize like the Holy Spirit working in different ways for the particular needs of the particular areas of the church. Um, Amen. Yeah. And and the, all of these traditions have come about um, in various times for both practical and spiritual reasons. And so that's and and that's just part of our humanity. Um, every tradition we have usually started out with something practical, and then we we gave it a spiritual meaning later, which is beautiful and good. But but this is kind of how these things happen. We should not be scandalized by that. The other things, just because we're running out of time. Um, we in the Byzantine church, I'll just speak for ourselves, um, married men can be ordained priests. So so many, if not most of our, our priests serving in parishes are married men with families. Um, another thing that I think applies to this, this uh, complementarity is the sacrament of marriage. So in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, the sacrament of marriage 
is initiated by the couple. So the the priest, the deacon that is there is a witness to the the sacrament that is that is instituted by the husband and wife as they say their vows and agree to the sacrament. Um, in the Byzantine Catholic Church, uh, the the sacrament is instituted by the priest. Um, that's why it cannot be a deacon; it must be a priest. And then he institutes the sacrament as as he does other sacraments, baptism, um, Eucharist, etc. Um, he institutes the sacrament, um, uh, gives it to the couple on behalf of Christ in the church um, by the laying on of, of crowns. He puts crowns on their heads, and that is the moment in in you do the Byzantine marriage ceremony does not require vows. Many times, it doesn't even have vows in it um, because the Again, the sacrament is given. I think that's the same thing in the West. There's um, the understanding of the "I I give myself to you, you you give yourself to me" is a more um, rational kind of um, scholastic, if you will, uh, understanding of how the sacrament can be established between two humans that agree to this themselves. Where in the East, there it needs to come from somewhere else. You know, it needs mm-hmm. to come from God because we stand in awe and wonder of something greater than ourselves, and that's where the sacrament, the mystery, comes from. So these things are not. They, they don't cancel each other out. Both are options within the wisdom of the church um, for understanding these things quite differently. Another one is, is voluntary and involuntary sin. Sorry, I live in Los Angeles and that's behind me as Sepulveda Boulevard. But, um, but in a voluntary and involuntary sin, we, we have invol- the concept or the idea of involuntary sin in the Byzantine of the church, which is a very odd thing for those in the West to understand. That the, and you have to listen to our episode on that if you want to hear more about it. Um, we don't have That's time, like my favorite episode that we've ever done. It's one of the best. I think a lot of people have said that about what, what it means to be um, wounded or set back in our education or or set back morally because of things that we didn't intentionally do ourselves, but rather were somehow um, either participants in or victims of that could actually hinder, could be called sin because it involves separation, um, but also because it is something that, that Christ wants to heal or re-educate us or, or give us mercy for. Um, and that that's kind of a foreign concept in the West too. But that again, it it there's the Eastern the beauty of the East in many ways is is a acknowledgement of the greatness of God that I don't need to understand every aspect of, but I stand in awe and wonder, and that actually builds a more that allows a more intimate relationship for those who who um, have that inclination in their personality and their temperament um, and then those in the West who who love God more by by receiving the gift of the beauty of, of analysis and and breaking things out of their component parts and understanding that aspect um, both lead to God both as John Paul says very eloquently are two lungs we need both and and every person whether you are committed to the East or the West, um, it's really, really important to educate on the other. Either, either, even though every church is whole within itself, you don't need the other ones in that sense for the participation of the church and the salvation of your soul. But it is so, it helps just like reading two different translations of a Bible, right? I can read two different translations and you don't need two different translations, but the other one actually helps me get a, a more accurate understanding of what the original language, the original intention was. And I think I think part of the complementarity um is simply that um, when the West can be too caught up in the head and um, too legalistic, then the East can come in and be like, yeah, bro, it's cool, chill out. And then when the East is being too chilled out, you know, the West needs to come in and say like, guys, we do need some rules. Like there need to be some rules or there's havoc. Uh, And so I just, I think there's a good complementarity there as well. Are you saying that the West is like, an umbrella parent or a parent that is too 
controlling the child, and the East is the stoner teenager that um, that needs the parent to like step in every once in a while. Um, so well, like, oh, I wouldn't have used that other. analogy, but, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe. We'll <laughs> no, we won't. Uh, okay. Well, thanks, Father Michael. You're appreciate welcome, you, Mother Natalia. Appreciate you, bro. Appreciate uh, you, Mom. Um, <laughs> we're so weird. Okay, uh, I'm going to wrap up by telling people that um, you can find our podcast on any of the major platforms. Um, we are also on YouTube, audio only. We're on Instagram and um, not TikTok. What's the other thing that we're on other than Instagram? Um, Facebook. Facebook. Yes, Facebook. Um, and then She's we're not on TikTok. Nun. Uh, <laughs> and um, we have a Goodreads page uh, that Father Michael and I as well as our listeners participate in um, lots of great stuff there and then uh, whatgodisnotpodcast at gmail.com is our email whatgodisnot.com is our website we also have a website for our nonprofit, Fotina P-H-O-Tina dot org and um, you can find us on Patreon for our nonprofit as well, which supports this podcast as well as our ministry to the poor and other Christian ministries. Um, YouTube audio only. I said that. I said that. We at also the beginning. are on YouTube sure audio only. Father <laughs> um, Michael, I love you. You're great. Love you too. Uh, and yeah, we usually close out with prayer intentions. So I'm going to ask for my prayer intention that you all pray for my friend, Father Travis Crotty of the Diocese of Sioux City, um, who St. John Paul II has for years been like the patron saint of our friendship. And so um, there's been like exchanges between the two of us of I he gave me an icon um of St. John Paul II as like my entrance gift and then I wrote an icon of St. John Paul II for him as his ordination gift um with a relic of St. John Paul II in it. So um please pray for for Father Travis who's the new vocation director for Sioux City. So um Father Michael prayer intention. Um I want to since this is a Sikh episode um please pray for the Please pray for the soul of Jean, my grandmother who died during Seek a few years ago when we, were, when we were in Indianapolis and I was there podcasting with Catholic stuff and uh, she was um, in the arms of our Lord, but but in the being taken care of by the little sisters of the poor in Denver, Colorado, um, who were amazing women and who were able to be there when we couldn't because almost my whole family was at Seek. Um, please pray for the little sisters of the poor who had unfortunately had to leave Denver um, just recently. Um, and they're still thriving in other places, but pray for their little sisters of the poor, amazing, amazing nuns. Uh, please pray for Sandy Barba, who is my spiritual daughter and who is doing a lot for Seek. I know this year and it's going to get stressful for her. Also pray for Madison Rogers, who I don't know personally, but who is the one who communicated with us to do this podcast and all that. So pray for all those who are putting Seed together or did put Seed together whenever you're listening to this. Um, and thank you to Focus. Awesome. Um, audience of one, Emma, would you like to give a prayer intention? I have a friend whose dad is um, actually, the day that we're recording this, undergoing a double lung transplant. Mm. So even still by the time that this comes out, uh, just still pray for him, his recovery, but then also the family uh, who uh, lost a loved one, right? Um, and mm. whose lungs are now being put into another man for a new chance of life. So just pray for both families, Um and for recovery that the body heals. Um, so, yeah. Amen. Father, can you give us a blessing? 
That's such an appropriate prayer intention for breathing with both lungs. I that, almost that, said yeah. it, and then I was like, don't do it. Mother and Talia, don't I, do that it. That wasn't even an intention. Like, <laughs> didn't even need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it will help us remember, and that's what our Lord does sometimes. May the Lord bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, have mercy on you. May our Lord give you everything you need to understand the beauty and the fullness of his church, to remain orthodox in the church, to understand the beauty of the wholeness and the universal nature of our Catholic church, to treasure that, to work on building it up. May our Lord give you understanding of the various ways that our church allows for discussion and engagement within various churches and the way that we are all in union as well. May you be messengers and missionaries to God's word in whatever way he calls you to. And if you are listening um, to this podcast and are not yet Catholic, may our Lord soften your heart to give you joy and movement towards the truth and the beauty and the goodness that he has to offer. May our Lord give you everything you need to build up his kingdom and for the salvation of your soul. May the Lord bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.